Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my own nephew, Richie Osler. Welcome to the podcast, Richie. Thank you, Uncle Dick. It's good to be here. Um, let me give you a little background on Richie. Richie is uh, my brother Steve's youngest son. Richie, um, a graduate from Olympus High School here in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Um, his family is um, a family of boys, Steve and his wife, Anne, who has since passed away, had one daughter, Amy, and then six boys, and Richie is the youngest of six boys. Um, this podcast is focusing on handling curveballs. Richie's dealt with a lot of curveballs in his life. Um, a couple that I'm aware of is his mother died of brain cancer in 2014, roughly six years ago at age 53. And Richie, I think, was 13 at the time. Mm-hmm, I was 13. And so that's a real difficult curveball, um, obviously, to have your mother, wonderful woman, die in your teenage years. Um, Richie then got a mission call. He got a mission call in April of, of 2018, was assigned to the Quito-Ecuador North Mission, and we'll talk about how Richie went to the MTTC in September and then learned that he was not going to Ecuador, but it was going to Minneapolis. And he spent six months in Minneapolis. And then he learned it was possible to go to Ecuador. And he then went to Ecuador and served for about a year until because of coronavirus, um, that mission, as, long, as well as other missions, closed down. So Richie is home from his mission, another curveball, and has been honorably released And we'll talk about, for those of you that are families and missionaries that are dealing with changing expectations, just some of the things that Richie will share and I'll ask may be helpful to you. Richie also received the devastating news that his nephew um, died in an automobile accident. His nephew is Sammy Glauser, a five-year-old boy who died in February of this year, 2020. So... Um, that's one of the most heartbreaking calls a missionary can get is to know that a dear loved one has tragically died during your mission. And I'll ask Richie just his thoughts on that and what parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ gave him comfort. Um, we offered a prayer and we hope that a spirit will be here that will help all of you. Maybe um, your personal story isn't dealing with changing mission expectations or even a family death, but maybe some of the things that Richie shares will be helpful for you as you're navigating kind of complicated stuff. So we're doing this podcast on the day our own son came home from his mission. He's been serving in Samoa and he um, loves Samoa. And after nine months being on his mission, that mission closed and he arrived this morning after serving nine months in Samoa. And he is one of the many missionaries now dealing with um, changing expectations. So once again, Richie, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Tell us about, let's just start with April of 2018. Um, You've decided to serve a mission. You opened that mission call. Tell us, um, did you open that call privately? Did you open it with your family? Tell us a little bit about opening that call. So yeah, I got my call and I remember getting it right after school. And I kind of, these are the days they come in the mail. uh Uh-huh. These are the days they came in the mail, not on email. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember it was really awesome because, um, my dad kind of told me before, he told me that I should try and have, um, my own personal experience about my mission call because it's, it's my mission call. I mean, it's something that everybody can celebrate, 
but it's something that I should take my own time to celebrate first. And so um, I kind of felt like I should go do it my own way. And I went up to my mom's grave, which That's is cool. a very spiritual place for me and for my family. And there I just, um, I read in DNC four first. I read about that and then I prayed and then I opened my mission call. And I remember just feeling so much joy um, that I was going to have the opportunity to serve the Lord. And that was really just such a great experience that helped me stay motivated for a long time to just keep going. Um, did your mother ha or parents have any connection to Ecuador? They had gone about 18 years ago. About when I was born, they had gone to Ecuador and they had visited a couple of parts, the Galapagos Islands and in Quito and in some other places in the rainforest. Had Ecuador been something you'd considered or was it on the guest map for the family or was it completely out of it was random? It was completely random for me. Um, I thought I thought I was going to go to Argentina. I don't know why, but that's kind of always where my mind went. But Ecuador was a very happy surprise. What gave you the idea to open that call at your mother's um, grave? And I love the way you talked about that being a very spiritual place for you. Um, I think my senior year of high school, um, that just became a place that, that I could go to whenever I was feeling sad, whenever I just needed, um, a place to just go sit and think. And so I'd start going there and it just felt so right when I went to, to open my mission call because of a lot of great experience that is a lot of great experiences that I had had before. And I think also a little bit of inspiration um, goes to my brothers who have also gone up there to open up their mission calls. What a tribute to your mom. Um, I have to, I, you can share some thoughts on this, but I have to think she's aware that those mission calls are being opened and that she's a part of that. Uh -huh. I think she is definitely aware and she, I'm sure she is very happy when her sons go on missions and um, I think for her it's as great as a, a, of an experience as it is for us. And then you went back and did you open the call with a big group, family and high school friends, or how did uh -huh. that work? After in the night, we went back and opened it with all my friends. That's uh -huh. great. And that's April of 2018, roughly two years ago from when we were recording this podcast. And you saw Quito, Ecuador North. And tell our listeners what your MTC date was and when you went to the MTC. My MTC date was September 19th of 2018. And which MTC did you go to? I went to the Provo MTC. And at this point, was there any concern? Because some missions you get assigned to a mission and people start to say, well, getting a visa to that mission is really hard and and sort of setting expectations that you might be sent somewhere else until your visa comes through. Was that ever part of the narrative for Ecuador? No, that hadn't been part of the narrative. And like even me and my dad, like just to be careful pretty much right after I got my mission call, we went and did all of our visa stuff and it was all submitted by pretty much the beginning of May. And so we were very surprised when, when it didn't come on time. So take our listeners to, um, you're in the MTC, you're learning Spanish, um, and you're expecting to leave to Quito, Ecuador and all that excitement. Tell our listeners how you, be, how you were notified. Just tell us that part of the story. So we were in the MTC and we had actually heard from another elder that did have visa problems that didn't submit his stuff that we should all go check our emails. And so we all went and we checked our emails 
and we got a message from the tur- one of the church's travel agents, um, the one that's in charge of Ecuador. And so she basically sent us an email just telling us that we weren't going to be able to get our visas on time and that we were going to be reassigned. And then the next day we went and checked our missionary portal and we had our reassignments already. Wow. Uh-huh. How did you feel? Tell our listeners what you saw in your new missionary assignment. I saw I saw the Minnesota Minneapolis mission. I saw a picture of my mission president and and her wife and I thought, "Man, they look pretty awesome. I'll be excited to go there." But I also kind of was very anxious. I was um I was wanting to go to Ecuador. I think um for me it was it was a bit hard to to kind of have my heart in one place, which was in Ecuador, and then kind of um, have that taken away and go to a different place that I wasn't expecting to go. So there was a lot of anxiety going with that. Um, and I think everybody in my in my MTC group kind of felt that same way. And we were all kind of just um, anxious to get where we wanted to go. And your MTC, tell our listeners how big your MTC group um, was that was going to Ecuador and then tell our listeners how many of that group ended up going with you to Minneapolis. So my MTC group, there were 16 of us, 16 elders, and we were all going to Ecuador. But of those 16, um, three went to Minneapolis with me. And how long were you still in the MTC before you went to Minneapolis? I was in the MTC for, for the full six weeks, and then right after the six weeks, I went to Minneapolis. And what part of that six weeks did you know you're getting reassigned to Minneapolis? Do you remember? I learned week four. So you had about two weeks left to uh-huh. sh- totally shift gears. and Yeah, but we, we were all hoping and praying that somehow they get our <laughs> visas during those two weeks. Of course. <laughs> um, it's colder in Minneapolis, I think, than Quito, Ecuador. Was that ever something you became aware of pretty quickly? And how yes. do you feel about cold weather? <laughs> I became aware of that very quickly. Um, the good thing is Ecuador is also a little bit cold. So I had packed, um, some cold stuff, but I had to go, um, to Walmart and buy a lot of new cold stuff, which I ended up sending back to my house. But I'm not honestly not a big fan of the cold. I was excited to get to the heat. <laughs> so it was a good, good curveball. What day did you, do you remember what day approximately you arrived in Minneapolis? Um, on Halloween, October 31st. You do remember that. Mm-hmm. And um, what was it? Did you come in in a normal transfer with other missionaries, or did you, the three of you just arrive off transfer? We we came in in a normal transfer with all the other missionaries. And um, talk about your first. Tell our listeners where your first area was. So my first area was in East St. Paul. Um, St. Paul is the second twin city with Minneapolis, and I was in a Spanish-speaking area, which was really nice for me because I was able to practice but not be totally immersed. Um, and it was it was an awesome area. How many areas did you have in in the mission in Minneapolis in that six months? I had two areas. I was in each area for three months. And were you in a threesome or were you in a twosome? I think I vaguely remember you being in a threesome. Yes, I was. I was in a trio for three weeks, or for three for three of the transfers, three of the four transfers, three of the four transfers. Uh-huh. Um, any thoughts on what that's like? Being in a trio is is good for some things, but bad for other things. Like it's good for having a good conversation and always having fun in your companionships and never having kind of awkward tension. But it's really hard when you actually want to do missionary work. 
Um, like when you want to knock doors, when you want to teach people, because you have to find a different rhythm and it takes a while to find. What, would you, what was the coldest temperature you remember in Minneapolis? Negative 60. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cold. It was really cold. It was during like, I think they called it the polar vortex. And it came down to Minneapolis and hit pretty hard. I we, think I remember that. I'm we were kind locked of a in that way. <laughs> yeah, I think you were locked in. Yeah, we were locked in. <laughs> that is crazy. Um, what was the culture um, from the other missionaries towards you? So there's a group of missionaries that were assigned to Minneapolis that are in Minneapolis. And then there's some others like you that are assigned to Ecuador that are in Minneapolis. Was there a culture where... The, the other missionaries saw you as temporary or not really fully real Minneapolis missionaries or was it talk about that a little bit, Richie? Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of the people, a lot of the other missionaries, they kind of, well, they knew we were visa waiting. They knew that that wasn't our final destination. We weren't going to finish the mission with them. So they kind of did treat us temporary, um, like we were temporary, which, which is true because we were there just temporarily. Um, and I kind of think that the missionaries that came in with me, we also kind of treated them like they were temporary. Um, we thought, oh, well, we don't really need to try to make relationships with these missionaries because we're going to be going to a different mission. It won't really matter. But I've kind of I've kind of found that the ones I did try to make relationships with, I still have those good relationships with them. And so to any advice going to to future missionaries that are going out to other places is to try and form those relationships as soon as they can, because the Lord is always putting people in our way, whether it be our companions or whether it be investigators, but we have to um, try and love those people, no matter um, if we're going to be with them um, finishing the mission or, or not. Are there certain church talks? Cause it could cause some, I don't know what the right word is, just some unsettledness, some dissidence when, you get a real spiritual confirmation about your call to Ecuador, and now you're in Minneapolis. Is there Are there church talks or principles or just things that helped you to feel like this is, even though I was called to Ecuador, I'm serving in Minneapolis, this is still where the Lord wants me to be? I think um, the biggest thing that helped me were a lot of Book of Mormon stories. Um, a lot of Book of Mormon characters that were just able to accept whatever the Lord had for them. Um, I think Nephi is the first one that comes to my mind because he was always willing to keep the commandments and he was always willing to, to do what he um, needed to do for the Lord. But also um, during that time, I, I was reading a little bit in the New Testament. I was reading about um, Jesus Christ and his life. And I think that really helped me because um, it says it numerous times in the New Testament. Jesus Christ himself says it, that he was sent to the earth to do his father's will. And um, there was one, there's one verse in, in Matthew 10, 39, that's kind of my favorite scripture um, that talks about how um, by losing our life in the Lord, we really do find our lives. And so I kind of felt like losing my desire in the Lord, that's the way that I can find what really makes me happy. It's a good answer. Was it discouraging? Did you have some pretty discouraging times in Minneapolis? I for sure did. I had lots of times where I just... Yeah, I just felt like I did not want to be there. I didn't want to knock doors in the cold. I wanted to go to a place where everybody spoke Spanish. Um, I wanted to be around the people that I wanted to be around. I wanted to eat different food. But um, 
I think a lot of those kind of bad feelings started to go away as I just tried to focus on, on my purpose. And talk to our listeners what your purpose is. I think my purpose more than anything was just to try and serve other people and to learn, um, to learn how to surrender my will to God's will. Um, because God, God knows everything. Um, he has a perfect plan for all of us. And so I wasn't able to understand that at first, but, um, I think towards the end of my mission, as more and more things started happening to me, I kind of started understanding that God's plan is perfect. And no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. Um, talk about your last dairy. I think before we went live, you were talking about it was a district, I think, or a district was forming. Uh-huh. And to share with our listeners about your last area in, in Minneapolis mission. So my last area was actually an English ward, but we were two Spanish missionaries. And so we wanted to try and speak Spanish and we started looking for Spanish people to find. And we started using the Hispanic white pages and we found a lot like that. And we started having so much success that um, the stake president there started talking to us about getting a branch started there because there were a couple of Spanish members. And so we had our second, no, our first sacrament meeting. And there were a couple, couple of members there. There were um, some investigators there, the stake president and one of his counselors were there as well as the bishop. Um, and so it, it was a really spiritual experience for all of us. And I think for me and my companions, we were able to see a lot of the, uh, a lot of the progress from the hard work that we had, we had done. Share with our listeners just one of your favorite investigators or re, or members or somebody became more active, just a missionary experience from Minneapolis. Um, there were a lot of really good experiences, but one was actually a person we, we found using Facebook. Um, we found them on a, a shop and sell um, thing, and we posted a Book of Mormon on that shop and sell for free. <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> And is that a standard thing in your mission or was that something you two came up with? That was kind of a standard thing in our mission, but we had been going, we had been trying really hard to use it. And so, um, this person responded a, a Hispanic lady and she told us that she was a member of the church, um, from way long ago, um, back when she lived in Mexico and that was probably 20 years ago. And she said that she wanted us to come give her a book of Mormon. So we went and we gave her a book of Mormon. Turns out her husband didn't know anything about the church. And so we started teaching them. And, and that was a really great experience. I never really um, was able to see what hap- what ended up happening with them. But for me, it was an awesome experience to just see how um, whenever we try to, to do the Lord's work, he, he will provide the people. Um, as I think I mentioned, at six months, you were able to go to Ecuador. If I could talk to you at five months and I said, Elder Osler, would you go to Ecuador now or would you just as soon stay in Minneapolis? What would you have said? I think at five months, I was still wanting to go to Ecuador. I think about um, probably two weeks before I ended up going to Ecuador, I was decided that I wanted, I kind of wanted to stay in Minnesota. I had a really good experiences and I had a really good area with a lot of awesome people. And so it was kind of hard for me to, to put that all behind. And then I kind of had one spiritual experience, actually that same sacrament meeting where I felt like I should um, stay in Minnesota and I felt like I should just um, surrender everything. And if that's what the Lord wants me to do, I was willing to do it. And so I felt like that. And I sent a letter to my to my mission president telling him how I felt. And he said he was willing to help me with 
um, whatever I needed help with, but he also told me to wait and to just kind of keep praying about it and just trust the revelation. And so I ended, I ended up um, praying about it lots, but about two days later, I got my visa from Ecuador. And kind of that same moment when I got my visa, I knew that I needed to go to Ecuador. How did you get notified that your visa had come through? The mission secretary there in Minnesota told me. She sent me a call and then sent me my visa. Did you know that it was increasingly more likely? Were there kind of rumblings that visas were starting to come through or did this just come right out of left field? Uh-huh. So there were three missionaries that went to Minnesota and one actually left after after two and a half transfers. So I kind of knew that eventually I'd get my visa. Um, we didn't know exactly when, but um, I kind of knew that eventually I'd get it. And um, it's interesting the way it came through at this time that you um, said, I'm fine staying in Minneapolis. I'm just, to use your word, surrendering. And maybe that's a better time then to go to Ecuador because you knew you were kind of leaving on on the Lord's terms, your terms, but you're just, you're at peace doing anything the Lord asked you to do. And it was no longer this sort of, am I going or I'm not? You're just at peace with whatever happened. Uh-huh. And... I think that's exactly how I felt. I felt a lot of peace just about whatever was going to happen. I, I knew I was going to be okay. I knew I'd be in the Lord's service and I'd be where he wants me to be. And so making that decision um, to stay in Minnesota or to to go to Ecuador, um, it kind of just became a decision of whatever the Lord wants. What advice do you have for, obviously there's a lot of missionaries like our son who's coming home after being out, you know, five, six, seven, eight months, there's just, I don't know the number, but it's thousands. Uh What advice do you have for that group that suddenly, it's not quite like your situation because you've been a curveball, but you're serving now. What advice would you have for those missionaries, especially when they don't know when they're going to go out or if they're going to go out or if they'll go back to the same country? Um, I think the biggest piece of advice I can give is to really just trust in the Lord. Um, And I think trusting goes a lot um, beyond just feeling trust in our hearts, but it comes with action too. And to me, part of that action was just working as hard as I could. So there are a lot of missionaries that might just be stuck in the house. They might not know um, when they're going to be able to leave, when they're going to be able to go to a different mission. But to those missionaries, I would just say, um, just keep reading your scriptures keep putting in your part and the Lord's going to make sure everything is okay. Because at the end of the day, um, we, we can only do so much to control our situation. Um, we honestly don't have that much control about our situation. Something my dad told me before the mission is you can't control your companion. You can't control, um, your area. You can't control your mission president, but there is one thing you can't control, which is your attitude. And so I really tried to just always have a good attitude no matter what situation I was in. It's really good advice. What advice would you give to yourself as you were arriving in Minneapolis? It sounds like you did a good job, but now that you're a year away from that, what advice would you give to yourself if you could talk to yourself on that plane ride to Minneapolis? I think I would have told myself to try harder at the beginning because I don't think I I tried hard enough. I think I kind of just went along with whatever my companions did, whatever they said, but I didn't really focus on making myself a disciple of Christ. And I didn't really focus on the people. I was just focused on getting to Ecuador. And so, um, I think 
a big part of it for me was just, well, I think that's the biggest piece of advice I'd give to myself if I could go back is just to, um, to give myself more to the work and to try as hard as I could from day one. It's a great answer. It's a really honest answer, Richie. Um, I think I'd probably give that same advice to myself as I flew to my mission as to, <laughs> even though it wasn't a change of assignment to give my, you know, to do that at the, right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. How do you get from Minneapolis to Ecuador? Do you remember the flight routing? This, Yeah, we went from the Minneapolis airport to Miami and Miami to Quito. So it was just a once connection flight. Uh-huh. Uh, talk about were you nervous? Now here you've been out six months, so you're kind of a veteran. It's a big chunk of time to be out. I've always felt like getting out six months is a real key part of a missionary. Were you talk to us about how you felt on that flight? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you both? Did you feel like a greenie? Did you feel like an experienced missionary? I I honestly felt like I had a lot of experience. Um, I felt like my Spanish was pretty good. Like just on that same flight, I had a conversation with one lady for about four hours from Miami to Quito. And we talked and I um, ended up like, yeah, kind of teaching her a lot about the Book of Mormon. And she ended up teaching me a lot about her beliefs. And so I felt like my Spanish was pretty good. I think the biggest thing I was nervous about was maybe a culture shock um, because I like being in the United States, even if you are teaching Spanish people, you still live in the United States culture. We're going to a different country. It's a completely different culture. And tell our listeners your first area. What, describe that first area for us. So my first area was in a park called Tulcan, which is right on the border of Ecuador and Colombia. And in that city, there are about, there are about 60,000 people. Um, it's not too big, and there there was a branch in that city. And so we were there. There were six missionaries in the branch, and we were working to try to make it a ward. Um, but it was an awesome area, and a lot of people were super interested. So it was a good way to start in Ecuador. What was the culture shock like? I think some of the weirder things of the culture um, there in Ecuador um kind of the way that the people talked because they had a completely different accent. So I had to kind of change my Spanish even more. Um, I think kind of a couple other things that were difficult about the culture um, was the food. The food was a lot different and I had really liked Mexican food. And so going from Mexican food to where they only eat rice and potatoes was a little bit hard for me. Um, And kind of just kind of the poverty um, there wasn't a ton of poverty, but it's a lot different than, than the United States. So that was also kind of hard for me. Was it easier to find people to teach than Minneapolis? Were people more receptive? Could you, did you teach more? Uh-huh. We, we definitely taught a lot more and it was kind of a big difference in that way because, um, in Minnesota, like, I don't know, it's, there are a lot of people there that just don't really want to listen to the missionaries that have already listened to the missionaries, but they're in Ecuador. There's so many people that even if they have listened to the missionaries, they love them. They want them to come back in. They want to keep talking. They want to give you food. And so that was a big difference for us. But I think kind of having people that are more accepting also comes with like its own um, its own kind of downside. Like people aren't really, weren't as willing to commit or people weren't as willing to um, go to church or stuff like that. Um. What was it like to come to a mission? I mean, if you'd come right to Ecuador from the MTC, you would have been, quote, a greenie. Um, but you're coming with six months of experience 
Um, were you a junior companion, a senior companion, your first companionship? So my first companionship, I was um, a junior companion. I was pretty much getting trained again. We were doing the 12 weeks books and book and everything. And so it pretty much felt like I was starting off brand new. And I kind of think every mission has their own culture. They have their own way of kind of doing some of the, some different things. So I kind of had to learn um, kind of how to change my whole outlook on the mission again. And I think for me, that was a very humbling and hard experience because I thought I knew everything. I thought I knew how to teach the restoration perfectly. I thought I um, was great at finding people and great at talking to people. But um, my companion really helped me to to learn and to, and to notice that um, I can still make a lot of improvement. And that even though I do know a couple of things, the work is kind of, the people are different. The work's kind of the same, but the people are different. And so I kind of need to change um, according to the people. It's a pretty humble, thoughtful answer, an honest answer. What advice would you give to missionaries that there'll be so many are sort of in your same boat where they've served it's a large chunk of time? And I'm hoping that with as coronavirus somehow um, slows down, is manageable, that missionaries that have come home like our own son that want to go back out and will likely be reassigned to a different mission, especially the international missionaries, most likely I think the plan is they'd go stateside. What advice do you have for them, especially if they have a big chunk of time in their own mission under their belt? I would say um, listen to your companions and try as best as you can to do humble, to be humble, but also apply what you learned because I think it doesn't matter in what mission you're in, you're going to learn a lot. Um, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to learn a lot about the gospel. And so you just have to always be trying to apply what you've learned. Um, because if you don't um, apply your knowledge, then that knowledge really, just really doesn't serve you in any way. Um, so a lot of missionaries like that have like a year out in the mission, they have a lot of knowledge. Um, but now it's just another opportunity for them to try and apply that knowledge. Were your companions in the mission willing to kind of learn from you? And um, did you feel like it was kind of a two-way street where maybe you had some things that you had learned that could be helpful in your companionship or your area of stewardship responsibility? Yeah, I felt like there were some things I was able to to kind of help my companions with. Um, different things from Minnesota that I had learned, like different examples to use when teaching, um, different ways to find people. And so I felt like I was also kind of able to give my own insights on the mission. And and I think kind of like I said, every mission has their culture, their way of doing things. So I was able to take some of the good things from the Minnesota mission and help them um, get into the mission where I was serving in, in Ecuador. Because I, I, that's a good answer. And I'm glad that I think sometimes we're, you know, we've learned how to do things in a mission. And then so when someone comes in, I think the assumption often is, well, you need to learn how to do it our way. But I hope as missionaries go back out at some point that this sort of cross-pollination, I don't know if that's a good way to describe this, but all this expertise that sometimes just isolated one mission can be shared in multiple missions to make each mission better uh -huh. in an appropriate way. So that in this example, the Quito-Ecuador-North mission in your area of responsibility got a little bit better because of the things you could bring and as well as your own humility to say, what can I learn here? Um, lifted everybody aggregately because of the combined knowledge. Culturally, sometimes that's hard to do because we kind of mm -hmm. 
do things a certain way. And obviously a mission president's in charge of what happens in a mission. But within that, there's, I think, an ability to, you've used the words humble a couple of times to be able to want to learn and grow from each other in this common goal to being people unto Christ. Um, share with us a story um, from this first area or secondary of somebody that you taught, baptized, or helped. Just what are some experiences that stand out to you you'd like to share with our listeners? I think um, one of the best experiences and greatest experiences I had in my in my mission was in my second area um, there in Ecuador. And I was actually in Colombia. I was on the other side of the border. Wow. And so I was up in my third country and um, I was with my companion. Did you need a new visa to get to Colombia? I did need a new visa. <laughs> turns You're out, getting good at this. <laughs> turns out I was visa waiting to go visa wait again. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we, we went to, um, well, we were actually serving people. We were, we were making Christmas presents for everybody and we started going around and we started giving out Christmas presents and we ended up giving one to a guy that was a pastor, um, for another Christian church. And it turns out that his cousin was actually our branch president where we were at. And so we kind of started talking to him. He told us, yeah, I love, I love the LD, the missionaries of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, I always welcome them into my house. I always talk to them um, and try to help them however I can. But I, I'm not baptized or anything, and I haven't gone to church. So we we started talking to him. We started teaching him. Um, we kind of talked about a couple deep, deep topics, and then we started. We just had a good lesson about the restoration. Um, we just taught it um, normal, just tried to follow the Spirit as best as we could. And at the end of the lesson, he he told us, he said, I know I need to get baptized because God keeps sending me missionaries. They keep teaching me the same mission, the same message, and it keeps happening over and over again. I know I need to, this is the path I need to take. I know you guys have the priesthood. And and so we were able to to kind of help him with his testimony and for him to, to realize his testimony. But he still kind of had um, a lot of steps that he needed to make. And he needed to build up the courage to leave his other church where they were paying him um, to come to another church well, and to change that to go to a different church. And so um, we had to kind of help him with that. And we decided that we needed to give him the book Saints because that talks a lot about sacrifice. And we found one in another missionary's apartment. It was kind of a miracle that we found it because we could we we had one ordered, but um, there were like a lot of problems, so it wasn't going to be coming anytime soon. But we found it in another missionary's apartment, and we gave the book to him. And he read it in about a week. He read the whole Saints, um, the first volume. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And he knew that Joseph Smith was a prophet after reading it. He he knew that he needed to make sacrifices just like the other saints had make, made sacrifices. And so after I was transferred out of the area... And about three weeks later, um, I got his baptismal picture, which was awesome for me. That's really cool. That started with delivering Christmas presents. If Is that right? Uh-huh, that's right. And did you just go door to door or how did you deliver? How did you first meet him? Pretty much we, we, yeah, we made the Christmas presents. We were hauling them around in a suitcase and we kind of started going to a couple of places we knew where poor people lived. And he wasn't really poor, but some of the people where he was living were poor. So we gave him um, a present and we gave everybody else where he was living a present. And then we got a return appointment with him. And that's how that all started. Uh-huh. 
Um, I have never, Saints hasn't been out too long, so I've never heard of the role of the book Saints, which I love to as, as a conversion tool. Uh-huh. And is sort of working with the Book of Mormon and his knowledge of the Restoration. Any was that something that was practiced in your mission, or was that something you just felt inspired for this investigator in particular? I think that was something that was uh, more felt inspired, um, because I think a lot of investigators aren't really ready to take on a book like that. It's a thick book. Uh huh. And so when we gave him that book, he was somebody that had already read all the Book of Mormon. Um, and he had already read a lot of church stuff and he, he was fairly, um, knowledgeable about everything of the church. So, um, giving him that book was perfect for him, but I think it depends on the situation because there are people that, um, maybe only need the book of Mormon. And then there are people that maybe need the book of Mormon and maybe an enzyme, maybe some stories from the enzyme to get them inspired. Um, but I think the biggest and most important thing is just to follow the spirit on that. And the Spirit told us that we needed to use saints as as a tool to help him. That's an awesome story, Richie. And do you remember, you kind of said this, but just if you want to elaborate any more on what, what was in saints that helped him? Um, first off was, was a lot about Joseph Smith, because saints gives us a really good um, insight on what Joseph Smith had to go through to be the prophet of the restoration. He had to fight his own challenges. He had to deal with losing children. And he sacrificed everything until his life um, for the restoration of the gospel. And so with the pastor, he he needed to make his own sacrifices. He needed to um, leave his other church, and he needed to just trust that the Lord was going to help him out if he made the right sacrifices. So um, when he finally was able to make those sacrifices— he knew how um, how he should do it, and he knew that everything was going to be okay. I love that, and I, I love the vision of Joseph. I love the personal story of Joseph Smith. I mean, we talk about the restored doctrine that came through, and we're kind of aware of the stories of losing children and the hardships, but it does give us vision um, for wanting to do hard things. There's mm-hmm. an example there um, of commitment and and belief and working through really hard things for truth. That is really, that's a wonderful connection for what he needed to do and gave this pastor the vision to do it. Mm -hmm. Do you stay in contact with somebody like that? Is there a way to stay in contact or? I've been looking for him on Facebook, but I haven't been able to find him. I I found some of his family though. Tell tell our listeners his name. His name is Uriel Acosto. That's great. So if any of our listeners know that person, (laughs) <laughs> by chance, um, message, um, Richie, uh, that's talk. How many areas were you in, in Ecuador? In Ecuador, I was in four areas. So that was your second area. If uh-huh. I remember, talk about, um, a story from your third area and then maybe a story from your fourth area. So in my third and fourth areas, I was there for a short time. I was in each for about three weeks. So I actually got emergency transferred from my second area to my third area. and. Um, that was kind of an incredible experience for me because there in my second area, I was kind of under a lot of stress. I was actually um, a zone leader and we just had a lot of stuff going on and I think I was super stressed out. And so then I went to from there to my third area um, and it was kind of 
um, one of the biggest blessings I saw in the mission because there in my third area was kind of the same area where I found out my, my nephew died. And so I was only there for a short time, but um, kind of my first couple of weeks there in my third area, um, we were just focusing on the work and I, that's all I had to worry about. Um, that's kind of what my mission president told me. He said, I just want you to just focus on the work until you feel good and then we'll get you back to leadership. Um, and so that's kind of what I had to do was just to focus on the work. And for me, those were a couple of the, the best weeks of the mission. And then it was during, during carnival, um, which is a holiday they have down there. And during that time, I, I found out that my nephew died, but it was kind of the perfect place, um, for me to be, um, during that time, because I was there with a good companion and I was only worried about the work. I wasn't worried about other missionaries too much. I wasn't worried about um, a lot of the things that come with leadership, but I was just there to be able to worry about to be worried about my investigators, to be worried about my companion and my family. And so for me, that was a, a huge blessing. I love the way you look at these changes and, and use the word blessing. Um, it's part of who you are. Talk about the stress of leadership. Go back to that a little bit. Um, I think sometimes we forget that Missions can be stressful, especially if you have leadership responsibility. Do you want to share just some of that with us? I think um, a little bit of the stress from leadership came from um, from me just just trying to be a good leader um, because I understand how how I understood how important the mission was, understood how important that the work was, and so I felt like I had to try and make other missionaries understand that. Um, and so I think that kind of stressed me out when, when we would see missionaries in our zone um, have disobedience problems, have missionaries um, just kind of do other stuff like that. And it really just made me feel feel discouraged and it kind of just made me feel um, stressed out. And I think that stress kind of made led me to, um, to kind of stop f- focusing on what was really most important, which was the work. Because I think a lot of times like um, leaders kind of, we just think about um, all the people um, that are under us. We think about um, all the people that we need to be worrying about, but sometimes we forget um, what is most important. And I think it doesn't matter where we're at in the church, what assignment we have, um, the Lord's work is always the most important. And um, I think for me, that's that's kind of what I had to had to realize was that the Lord's work is important. And there in my third area, I was, I was able to realize that. What, what advice would you give to missionaries that feel that kind of stress of being in charge of a zone, um, but recognizing there's missionaries in the zone that aren't, that are disobedient. And it's sometimes hard to control that. What advice would you give to others in that situation? I would just say, um, recognize that everybody has their agency, that all missionaries can choose what they want to do. Um, but also help them to realize that it's the Lord's time and that if they're being disobedient on the Lord's time, then um, that's going to go against them. And so, but I think most importantly, as a, as a leader, the most important thing you can do is try and love people. And so you have to find kind of a balance between, between loving people and, um, and just trying to be the perfect leader. Um, Just trying to be like Jesus Christ was in every moment. I think that's the most important thing that, that any missionary leader can do. Um, and that's going to be what helps their mission the most. It's a really good answer. Did you feel like you had to be, was any of the stress you felt, Richie, just because you felt like you needed to be perfect and 
as a leader and, you know, as measured by however you measure that in a mission by number of people you're teaching or baptizing or perfect obedience, did you internalize stress of, I've got to be this perfect missionary now because I need to set the tone for the zone? Uh-huh. Or was it more just the stress of seeing members in your zone not quite do what they should do and not how to, how to manage that? I think that's also like a big part of it is is everybody's kind of looking at you to see the example, right? And so that's kind of what I was focused on. I was focused on being the example and trying to show everybody like the best way to find, the best way to teach. But I wasn't really focused on um, on kind of just doing the things just because I was focused more on doing the things to be an example than doing the things just for my love for the Lord. And so I think that's the most that's one of the most important things that leaders can do is yes, like try to be the example, but also not just doing the things just to be an example just so everybody else can see, but doing the things just because you love the Lord. It's a really good answer, really honest answer. Um, so you're in this third area, and it sounds like that feels really good to you, and you're mm-hmm. able to focus on your efforts. Talk about just learning about your nephew, Sam, or do you call him Sam or Sammy? I, I always called him Sammy. Uh-huh. Tell us about how you're notified of Sammy's death. So... It was, I think it was a Monday morning that I learned actually. Uh-huh, it was. And uh, my mission president called me. And my mission president kind of just um, told me that, first off, he just told me that he loved me. And then he just said that the Savior loves me. And then he kind of told me what happened. And he said, um, I'm going to give you like the opportunity to take like 10 minutes to just pray. And then you can talk to your family a little bit. And so... Right after getting off the phone with my mission president, uh, my companion gave me a blessing, actually. And then um, I kind of went and just prayed for a little bit. And I just felt very peaceful about the whole thing. I just knew that me being on the mission field was the best spot for me to be. Um, because there's no better place that that I could be um, for the Lord to take care of my family. Because I knew if I was serving the Lord with all of my heart, that He would he would take care of my family. And that's kind of what what I felt in my heart. Um, I kind of felt the Lord say to me, um, if you feed my sheep, I will make sure your family's okay. And so that's what I had to do. Um, But then I I talked to my dad and and he told me everything that happened. That was a really hard phone call for me. Um, I think pretty much that whole day, I I was probably in tears the whole day. Um, Why was that a hard phone call? Because I don't know. Was it just the reality as you talked to your dad and recognized, even though you knew what had happened, uh-huh. was it just sort of the reality of what happened and recognizing there's people that you really love that are really sad? Yeah, I think um, I think that is probably the hardest part. Um, for me, it was it was seeing my family, kind of just hearing my dad on the phone. I could just feel that he was in pain and. I could only imagine the pain that the rest of my family was feeling and kind of for me, that kind of just made me want to break down. That's honest. Um, just because you, you just hear people that you love so much, um, kind of just going through so much pain. And I think that brings a lot of pain to whoever. And so, um, for me, that's kind of why it was such a, a difficult phone call. Tell our listeners about Sammy. Sammy Sammy was awesome. I honestly don't remember a ton about Sammy, but he had the best attitude in the world. He was always so happy. 
and he would always run around and he had more energy than he knew what to do with. And that energy was very contagious. Um, and we sure, everybody in my family, and I'm sure everybody is sure missing Sammy a lot right now. Because um, he was such an awesome kid with such a, a bright soul. And I didn't know Sammy very well. You knew him a lot better than I did. I and mean, he lived really close to you and he was in your home a lot. But when my wife and I went to the funeral, I felt I really got to know Sammy and um, the talks that were given there. And I don't know if, were you able to FaceTime into the talks, Richie? I was able to FaceTime into was the, the talks. Was the talk technology allow you to hear the talks or was it choppy? It was choppy. <laughs> so I guess it's recorded and you've heard uh-huh. it. But your brother um, gave a great talk. Um, Dave Glauser gave a great talk. Your mm-hmm. your father, um, Dave uh, Steve Glauser's father, Steve. I'm thinking of all the, you know, Sam's father that spoke. And it was I learned about this kid that's larger than life that had a bigger spirit than his body. And uh-huh. we're all grieving that young man's gone. What advice do you have for others that um, you're still kind of new walking this road? He's only. You know, this is only less than two months ago that he died. What other, what advice do you have for people that are kind of getting just this shocking, devastating call of a loved one that dies? I think if there's one thing that I learned my whole mission, it's just to to know that the Lord's timing is perfect um, and his plan is perfect. I don't think we understand why a lot of things happen. I don't think we'll ever understand why some things do happen. Um, Not in this life, at least. But the Lord knows everything. And the Lord really um, knows what's best for us. And he's really not going to do anything um, that's not for our good. Some things are very painful. But I think that's a big part of it. It needs to be painful. Because here on this earth, we're, we're all walking in the discipleship of Jesus Christ. And as a missionary, you wear his name on your chest every day. And so part of that path of discipleship is becoming like him. You have to walk a little bit of what he walked. You had to um, do what he had to do when he was here on the earth. Um, and so I think for me, that's that was kind of a big step in, in my path of discipleship. And kind of when all that happened, it reminded me of, of the story of when um, Jesus heard about John the Baptist dying and how he went and cried. He went and wept. Um, and that's kind of how I felt. I felt like me having that experience was a part of my discipleship of me becoming um, a better servant of Jesus Christ and to try and feel um, the pain that he felt because the pain that I felt and that everybody in my family felt um, and that we're still feeling, I think, um, is a is a lot of pain. It's really hard. But I think um, just no matter what happens, we just have to remember that we're walking in the path of discipleship. And everything that happens to us is is to make us um, more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a really good answer. You're really a thoughtful, deep thinker. You're way mature past your years, and <laughs> it's a credit to you and your family. Talk about, um, you've had really two tragedies that I'm aware of. Your mother passing away from brain cancer, which was a little bit more of a longer term, you know, mm-hmm. and this being another tragic death that happened instantaneously. Um, how do you, 
Did you, do you, did you get angry at God? And how do you reconcile if you did at times just how to find peace and a loving God that allows really difficult things to happen? Those are some of the most complicated questions we face uh-huh. in mortality. You have this unique now ability to sort of, you know, this brutal road to be able to help others that are on this road. Just thoughts, thoughts about that, Richie. I don't, I don't think I ever felt angry towards God, but I did question why. That was it's always honest. kind of something something I was questioning is why does this happen? Why me? Um why why now? Why in this moment? Um I think I had to I had to question a lot of those. Um had to make those questions and I think um I don't think I've really figured out the questions for all of them. I haven't felt found an answer for all of my questions. But I have found the peace that I've I've looked I've been looking for, um, and I think that's something really comforting about the gospel, is when we have those questions, maybe we won't always receive the answers right away, um, but I think a lot of the times we can feel an immediate answer, um, and that immediate answer a lot of times is a feeling of peace, and so, um, kind of me having those questions, thinking why does my mom have to die? Why does my nephew have to die? Why does that have to happen when I'm on the mission and I'm not with my family? Um, I think asking those questions um, to God and not being mad at him, just asking him why, kind of helped me to feel a lot of peace in my life, um, to help me feel peace about the situations. And just knowing, yeah, maybe I don't understand it right now, but I will understand it one day. I will look back and I'll be able to understand why this had to happen. Um, And that's going to be something that helps me. And then I'll know the why. But for the moment, I have this peace that one day I will know. It's a great answer. Um, I'm just going to repeat some of that because I, and correct me if I misspeak, but I, th- I love the way you said, I have questions and you didn't create any shame around questions. You didn't say anywhere in your answer there, it's, it's not okay to have questions. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's fine to have questions and about why my mom is gone, why Sammy's gone, why that happened on my mission, why my mom left when I was a teenager. And then I loved your answer that sometimes you don't have answers for all of that right now, but what you have is peace. And I love that because I think sometimes in my own life, Richie, I don't have answers for everything. And if the only way I could get peace was to get sort of answers to everything, I think I would not have peace, but I love the way you've just said, I hope those answers come. I believe they will. And it may take till the next life I fully understand the answers, but the atonement of Jesus Christ and my own prayer can give me peace. And so that I can, it may not, you still may have peace and sadness at the same time, but peace is what a wonderful thing to have in your life. Mm-hmm. Is that okay summary of what you said? Yeah, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's sustainable too. I always look for ways to answer complex questions that are sustainable and also can work for other people. And I love that, that what you just taught there is sustainable and works for other people. Because um, we may not always get answers for why. Talk about your mother's influence. Talk about if you're give, just tell our listeners um something about your mother that helped you be a better missionary? Um, My mother always had a really, she was always very devoted and she always wanted to serve. I think that really helped me 
um, on the mission to, to kind and she of... she was a return missionary from uh-huh, Canada. She was a return missionary. But her example of, of selfless service was a great example for, um, to me because she showed me just to, to love people, to try and serve people, to not try and fix everybody's problems, but just to try and love and serve them. And that a lot of times that's going to help them fix their own problems. And so I think for me that, that really helped me um, to just try and love and serve people I think she was a she was a great example with that. I remember growing up, um, just so many people that she would minister to, so many people that she would serve, and especially in our own in our own home, she would always love and serve us no matter what we did. And so she was an incredible example to me. It's a great answer. What a tribute to your mom. Did you? Sometimes we hope to feel people that have died and have really deep spiritual experiences. And sometimes people have those and sometimes really faithful people don't feel people on the other side. Mm-hmm. Have you felt your mother's influence at times or has it been more general? Any thoughts you want to share on that? Um, there have been times where, where I've felt it very, very strongly, but I think during my mission, it was more of a general feeling, more of like a, a hand kind of just softly pushing me on the back, just pushing me to keep going a little bit forward. I don't think it was somebody that was there just kind of um, yelling at me to to get going, but it was kind of more of just a soft feeling more than anything. I love that. What advice do you have for other people who have lost a parent prematurely? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of advice I could give, but I think for those that, um, that believe in God and that believe in the plan of salvation, I just think the most important thing to know is that those things are true, um, that one day you are going to be able to see your parent again because I have no doubt that I'm going to be able to see my mom again. Um, it's not even a question in my mind. I, I just know, and I've, know, I've known since she died pretty much. Um, so I think it's just really, it's really important to just hold on to that valuable testimony, that valuable information, and just to do everything you can um, today just to be able to prepare yourself for when you're going to be able to see your parent again. Um, as people in your neighborhood, and this is going back a little bit, when your mother died, obviously your family's really close to you, but you have ward people and friends. Do you remember things that somebody said that were really helpful to you that were just not kind of in your inner circle, but maybe the next circle that helped you or that were helpful things? It's sort of like what advice can you give to people that want to say the right thing to a teenager who's lost his parent? I think one of, I remember one of the people that me and my dad home taught, actually, he told me um, just to, just to try and always remember my mom and to try and do things to remember her. And one of those things was to go up to her grave. He told me specifically that I should try and go up to her grave as often as I can. And so I think for me, that was a, a big help um, because those people the people that have died in our lives, they're, yes, they might be gone, but we need to keep remembering them. And I think remembering them is a big part of the of the grieving process because if we just try to forget about them, it's just going to cause pain for us. But if we try to remember them, we're going to feel, um, yeah, maybe we're going to feel some pain, but we're also going to feel a lot of joy, the joy for the lives that they lived. And I think I was able to feel a lot of that as my um, with my mom. Because I always kind of tried to remember her. I tried to remember the things the things that she did. And I tried to do things to remember her, like going up to her grave. And I think by doing that, 
I was able to experience a lot of joy instead of a lot of pain. Tell our, tell our listeners where Sammy is buried. Sammy is buried right next to my mom. Tell our listeners what it was like to walk to your mom's grave after your mission and then know that your nephew's there. I think I think for me it, it made that place um even more sacred personally and and it made it um a place that I want to be even more when I'm having hard times. Because having having the two people that I've lost in my life right there, right next to each other, is such a blessing. Um because I know that that my mom is is there up with is there in heaven with with Sam. I know that they're probably having a good time together and that they're um, feeling a lot of joy and happiness together. And to have them um, have their graves right next to each other is awesome too. Because whenever I go on to go remember my mom, I can also remember Sammy. Whenever I want to go remember Sammy, I can also remember my mom. And so it kind of unites them into, into my heart and to, into everybody's heart in my family. What a great answer. I the last picture I saw of Sam's grave is it's decorated with lots of stuff. Share with our listeners what's on Sammy's grave right now. It's got lots of flowers. It's got windblowers. It's got some Pikachu balloons. It's got a big six balloon because he just turned six this last week. That's great. Tell us, tell our listeners about Sammy's wonderful parents, your sister Amy and her husband Steve. Just share with our listeners a little bit about those two awesome people. I have so much respect and and love for my sister and my brother-in-law. Um, they are incredible people, and and the things that they've had to go through recently has been so hard. But every time I see them, they they have a smile on their face, even though I know it's so painful for them inside. But I'm really grateful for their examples because they just show to everybody around them that even though they can't be with their little boy right now, that things are gonna be okay. And that they're going to be able to be with him later because they're following in the path of, of discipleship. And I think for me, I've been re- I've been able to see um, the atonement working in them. And I'm so grateful for, for that atonement as well as for my br- brother-in-law and my sister because they have been such great examples um, to show me and to show other people that the atonement is real and that it helps us in, in every circumstance. So I, I just have so much respect for them and for the people that they are and for their way of handling with with all of this difficult stuff that's going on. What's it like to come home and just have everything canceled? Is there are you liking part of this? Because I assume that you're just together as a family. You're with your wonderful dad and your extended and your your brothers and those that are a lot of your brothers are married or getting married. And, uh-huh. And you're with Steve and Amy and their family, and all this stuff is canceled. I assume that that's healing for your family, just to be able to kind of close ranks and be a family and not be too distracted. Yeah, it's it's really nice because we're just able to be together as a family. We don't have lots of distractions taking us away together, away from each other, and so it's awesome. And and we for sure cherish every moment that we can have together. Uh, your family's not on the podcast, but I would guess the news of one of the silver linings of coronavirus and Ecuador locking down is you coming home. I would guess if I had your dad here, your brothers or your sister, that they would say, well, this has been just a real joy to have Elder Osler Richie return home. And 
And that's probably been a real point of joy in the middle of this darker time. Mm-hmm. So um, someday you're going to walk your wife up to that, your girlfriend um, who become engaged, your wife, and that will be a wonderful um, spot as you and your wife visit that grave of your nephew and your mother, and and she'll be a part of that. And that's just going to be holy ground for you for the rest of your life. You'll bring your kids up there. Mm-hmm. Um, you may bring your grandkids up there someday and talk sure. about your mom and Sammy. And um, I just love the way you talk. I love the way you opened your call there. And I love the way that that's just an anchor spot for you and your mortal journey that I think will continue to be an anchor spot. It makes me want to do a better job of visiting um, grave sites of the people that I love that have gone before me. I think it's a great way to honor them and and keep the sort of connection going. For sure. Anything else you want to share with our listeners, Richie, before we wrap up? Um, I don't know. I, I just feel very grateful in this moment for the atonement. I feel very grateful for the sacrifice that our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ put um, put down for all of us. And I think that sacrifice is, is what we need to keep on going. Because I think when whenever tragedies, whenever bad things happen, we, we have a hole in our heart. But um, I don't think we ever get rid of that hole. But I do think that through the atonement, that hole can get smaller. Because um, maybe sometimes it feels like it's a really big hole. But... With the atonement, that hole just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Um, and so I just feel very grateful for the atonement and and for all it's done for me and for my family. I love that. And my frequent listeners know I read this quote a lot, but it's the wounded healer and um, a, a minister's service. And I call Richie Osler a minister will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks the great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of the desert by someone who's been there. And I recognize and our listeners recognize that you're a wounded healer um, in the sense that you've walked some really unique deserts with the death of Sammy, the death of your mother, and a mission that was kind of full of curveballs. Uh-huh. And I think that gives you um, great ability to heal and give hope to other people. And I know you're doing that in this podcast. You're doing that in your life. You did that in your mission life because of, but I think that's part of your mortal mission now is an understanding just like you shared with the atonement of Jesus Christ. And you've had to learn that personally. It's not just some abstract concept that you teach, but you know that personally because you've had to use the atonement to heal broken hearts and to close that. So thank you, my nephew, my friend, Richie Osler, for being on our podcast and, um, this doesn't count as a homecoming talk. That will eventually <laughs> happen. But um, for those that know Richie, this will give um, you insights into this great man and the wonderful mission and his great heart and his understanding of the doctrine of our church. And thank you, our listeners. This is Richard Osler signing, up on, signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.